If you were here last week, you remember that I talked a lot about hypocrisy, about are we a kind of people who are what we say we are? We do what we say we'll do. We're not one way with one group of people and one way with another group of people, but we are consistent and full of integrity in the way that we live our lives. But this week's passage brings up an even more frightening possibility, which is that we might not even be aware of how, how, how much hypocrisy we have. We not, may not be self-aware enough to realize that we are behaving hypocritically, that we are prone to self-deception, and we're prone to a lack of self-awareness about the reality within us. I always remembered myself as having been a good skier. I skied a lot in high school and in college. I grew up in Rochester, went to college in New Hampshire, lots of skiing going on there. And then, you know, after that I didn't ski very much. I went, I was working, I had babies and kids and everything, and so I didn't do much skiing. And I was in my 40s when I decided I'm gonna go back to the slopes. And you know, I'm, I'm a good skier, so no problem. You know, it's just like riding a bike, right? You just jump right back in there and you go do it. I nearly killed myself, <laughs> jumping into the big hills and the moguls and all of that. You know, I couldn't even move the next day, like I was <laughs> so sore. It's a little different to ski in your 40s than it is in your 20s, especially if you haven't been doing it all along. But I was not aware. I was deceived about my own ability athletically at that point. I did not, I was not even aware of my own weakness. See, we think of deception as something that someone does to us. In Christian circles especially, we talk about false teachers who are deceiving others. But James is saying the worst kind of deception comes from within. It comes from within. Jeremiah talks about this, Jeremiah 17.9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Pretty, pretty terrifying. And so it's interesting here to me that what James is trying to do is raise our self-awareness of about, I mean, really the whole book, but particularly this passage, raise our own self-awareness about what we're really doing, what we're really like. In some ways, this is a very modern passage. It's very 20th, 21st century psychology because he's talking about, are you, are you aware of yourself and what's going on inside of you and why you're doing what you're doing? saying we good Christian people are capable of being deceived about ourselves. And I would say that this word should make us stand up and, 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 and listen for a moment. It should put a little bit of holy fear in us, particularly if you've been a Christian a long time. You're like, I got this Christian thing. I'm good at it. I've been doing it a long time. Me and Jesus, we're like this. And I would say, be careful lest you fall. We can all be capable of deceiving ourselves about where we are with the Lord, where we are spiritually. Lord, help me not to be deceived about myself. Help me to have a right and true estimation of who I am and not be blind to the things about myself that, that God and possibly other people even see about me. In the 50s, 1950s, two psychologists named Joseph Lunt, Luft and Harrington Ingram came up with a model that's fascinating about relationships one with another. This is, I do really want you to look on the, the handout. It's little I know, but there's a, there's a little diagram with squares because I think it's pretty cool. I, I always thought this was really cool. It's actually very scriptural, even though they weren't coming at a scriptural standpoint, but I've done Bible studies on this because everything on this has a very scriptural basis to it. And he talks about the, our different selves that we all have. The first is our open self on the top left. That's the part of ourselves that we know about ourselves and that we also allow other people to know. So it's our open 
place where we are free to, to express what we're going through, who we are. We know what we're going through, and we, we're open about that with others. Then the next one is the hidden self, or some people call this the facade. This is the part that we know about ourselves, but we hide from others. This is that, that get real idea, right? That at church we tend to come and we know things about ourselves, but we put on a different facade. That's the hidden self, the facades that we put up. And then there's the blind self. This is the most terrifying one. This is the stuff that other people know about us that we don't know. Put in other words, this is what people say about you when you leave the room. <laughs> I hate that part. And then finally, there's the unknown self. It's the part that we don't even know about ourselves and not that other people don't know. Only God knows our unknown self, those parts of us that maybe our wounds and our, our weaknesses that we're not even aware of and no one sees. And the point of this little, little diagram is that the, the psychologists were saying that, that a healthy person has a very large and ever-growing larger open self. That part of maturity and growth is to let that open self start to get bigger. That what we know about ourselves expands and what we are able to share with others expands. That there's less hiddenness, that there's less blindness to who we are. That's kind of what we talked about last week, right? Let's, let's stop with the hidden self here at church, okay? Let's be honest. If we know that we're struggling, if we know that we're going through something, let's be honest about it with each other. Let's not put up a, praise the Lord, happy Christian facade. But let's... Praise the Lord, but say, I'm hurting and I need help. Let's, let's take down that hidden self. In some ways, the hidden self is easier to take down because we can choose to simply be a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more open with what we know about ourselves, right? The hard ones to change are the blind self and the unknown self because we don't even know we have them. We don't even know what they are. This is where deception and self-awareness, lack of self-awareness come in. All of us have a blind self. There's parts, ways that you interact, ways that you react in a situation, um, ways that you speak that may be thoughtless or unkind, or we don't realize that we're doing it, and, and we all have it. And the hard thing is if we, you know, if we're not very self-aware, we don't realize we're not self-aware, right? Because by definition, we know we're not aware of ourselves. So it's really hard. Now, I know if I went around the room this morning, most of you would say, well, I, you know, you're right. There's lots of people that are like that, but I'm, I'm pretty self-aware. You know, I, I pretty much know myself. I've been around the block a few times. I know myself. Most of you would probably say that. The funny thing is that's true of most people in the world, and there was a great study um, by Tasha Yurik a number of years ago where she did an, a survey and found that 95% of people say they're very self-aware. You want to make a guess as to how many actually are? It's about 10 to 15% truly are very self-aware. Most of us are not very self-aware. Um, and she, she talks about this um, partly because we all naturally have blind spots. We just, we naturally get into autopilot. We just do what we're going to do. We don't have to think about everything. And so we, we react to situations. We, we react to people. We say what comes to our mind. We don't really think a lot about it. That's that blind self. Part of this is just natural. Um, over my years serving at my old church, I had occasionally people that would come to me and confront me about something. And it was always about the same thing. They would always say the same thing. They would say, Beth, and they would obviously have had to work themselves up to, to share this with me, right? They had to get their nerve up. And they said, Beth, I'm, I just want to know what I've done to offend you because you're obviously angry with me 
because uh, you keep it just ignoring me and just looking right by me when you pass me. It happened multiple times. Somebody came to me. And every time I was like, what? <laughs> like, I don't understand. I do like this person. I, I never, I was not like angry and walking. What is the world is going on here? And what I realized was that these were people I mostly knew at church. So they weren't people I tended to socialize with outside of church. They were people I just knew in the church service. And as, a, as I was an active volunteer and also on staff, I wasn't the lead pastor at the time, but I had a lot of responsibilities on Sunday morning. I was leading worship. I was copying music. I was doing stuff in the lobby. So I would get into, you know, put my head down and get my work done mode on Sunday morning. And so I would just kind of walk by people. I wasn't thinking about pastoring people. I, would, I had a different job on Sunday mornings. And this is why they would say this to me. It was a blind spot. I had to work really hard to undo that blind spot. And I'm sure I still can fall into it to get into my groove and to not pay attention to what's going on and who's around me. So we all have blind spots, church, every single one of us. It's part of our lack of self-awareness. It's part of why we need this book. Um, and the other, the other thing that she cites as far as why we tend to think we're more self-aware than we are is that we tend to feel happier when we put ourselves in a more positive light. This is why we all tend to describe our children as above average. Does anybody have any below average children that you want to say? I mean, no, of course not. My, my children are above average. Well, you do realize statistically that's impossible. Half of them really are below average. In the same way, we all say that, you know, I'm an above average driver. I know I am. I don't know about y'all. Y'all. But again, statistically, half of us are below average drivers, just to let you know. <laughs> we are part of the cult of self, unfortunately. We tend to be somewhat self-absorbed. We see things through our own lens. We have our own blind spots. We're like those maps that show like New York is big and then the rest of the world recedes into a little tiny point. <laughs> That's we have a lot of those in New York. We think we're the center of the world. Well, you know what? The reality is we think we're the center of the world. <sighs> Jesus knew this too. He spoke to this. He said in Matthew 7, 3 to 5, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. We don't even know we have a plank in our own eye sometimes, do we? We just see all the specks in everybody else's eye and don't realize the plank that's in our own eye. So my first job this morning with this somewhat lengthy introduction to this passage is to convince you and me that this applies to us. That you and I may have blind spots, blind selves, that we can be wrong, that we sometimes don't listen, that we speak out of turn, that we are sometimes thinking more about ourselves and others, that our actions are not always consistent with our beliefs, that it's okay to realize this about ourselves, and that this is not a moment to say, oh, I'm so glad my husband's listening to this message. <laughs> or I really wish my wife would listen to this message. No, that's not what this is about. Does it apply to me? I have a really, really good friend. Um, who is very, very firm in all her opinions. Do you have any friends like that? She's very, very firm. She's, you know, she's got lots of opinions. Um, but we're really good friends. And so I once asked her, and I didn't really ask her this because of our long and loving history together. I said, have you ever admitted to anybody that you're wrong? And she kind of looked at me like a little confused. And she's like, well, no, because I'm not wrong. <laughs> And then we both died laughing, because she even she could hear how silly that sounded, how funny that sounded. But that's how we are, just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. 
What's amazing is that God is faithful to us, even though we're so clueless about ourselves. Amen? So as we seek him, as we come before him humble and vulnerable and say, Lord, I know that I have blind spots. I don't even know what they are, Lord, but you do. Maybe my husband or wife does. Maybe they've been trying to tell me, Lord, let me listen. Maybe my children are trying to tell me, my parents. Lord, maybe, maybe make me open to what you want to do, how you want to change us. And let's promise ourselves this morning, church, that we're going to hear this and how it applies to me, each one of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to head into James's uh, help here. He says we have three areas that we need self-awareness. And the first one, if you, you can look back on it if you want. I'm going to reread just the little first section of James 1. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is one of the best verses I feel in all of scripture. We should all memorize it. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I used it in a life group training because if you're a life group leader, you need to be quick to listen, slow to speak. I've used it in parenting classes over and over again because as a parent, you better be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This is such wisdom. It's, it's simple. You don't need Greek to know the Greek to understand what it's saying. It's very clear. You all can understand it. It's just harder to do. And I encourage you, I want you to, I'm just going to challenge you this week to try it. Try it with your kids. If you've got teenagers, I want you to practice this week being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Can you do that? How about with your husband or wife or significant other? Try for the week to talk less and listen more. And tell me next week what it does to your relationship. I'm guaranteeing you it will improve it in some way or another. At church or at work or at the, in, in the world, to be a person who listens more, not being quick to state our own opinions, but listens to other people's thoughts, even when they're different from ours, and realizing I've got something to learn from others. Let's, let's start to do this. It's so simple, but it's such wisdom. It reminds us of several Old Testament Proverbs. James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Proverbs 10:19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I really like the New Living translation. I don't often use the New Living, but I like their translation on this verse. It says it this way, Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. How's that? How's that for getting real? Let's just get real. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his word? words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. If you've been told, I've, you've got a lot of words. Maybe it's time for us to stop having so many words and to start to listen just a little bit more. I want to talk about anger because it talks about anger in this passage as well. Because the anger, it says slow to anger because man's anger does not bring the, the, the righteousness that God desires. And, you know, he's talking here about a quick-tempered anger. He, he, he's saying be slow to anger. And every one of us knows this to be true. How many have regretted words they have said hastily in anger? Anybody? If you haven't raised your hand, you're lying. <laughs> because I know every one of us has. We all get in that heat of the moment, say things, so that, that quick anger. It's not that we can never be angry. There are times to be angry about things. There's a righteous anger when things are unjust, when they're not right. Um, that's, that's true. But here's the truth, okay? And I want you to hear this. 
We tend to think of all of our anger as very justified and righteous. And other people's anger is really unfounded. They're just a hothead. Am I, am I right? I have a pastor that used to say you're meddling now. Well, I'm meddling. This is part of our myopia, our lack of self-awareness and how the world revolves around us, right? Let me give you an example of this. Let's just say Paul and I are having a fight. Now, that doesn't happen very often. We, we very rarely really have, a, have, a, have an argument, uh, a heated one. But let's say we're having an argument and he's getting a little hot about it, you know, getting a little angry and he's maybe raising his voice just a little bit and everything. I, what I'm thinking is, See, there he goes. He's such a hothead. I mean, I'm obviously in the right. That's why I'm so calm. That's why, you know, he's just losing control of his emotions, but I'm in control. I'm going to have high ground, right? That's what I'm thinking. But if the tables are turned and we're having this argument, and I'm the one getting all hot and bothered, and I'm the one getting kind of angry, well, that's because, because I'm right and he's so wrong, and of course he should listen to me, and he's lucky I'm not more angry, honestly. <laughs> Am I speaking to anyone here? Do you have these kind of discussions in your home? Do you have these kind of arguments? Does anyone understand what I'm saying? <laughs> James is practical. This is a self-awareness thing. This is the deception that we're capable of, that our anger is always the right anger, and other people's anger is always wrong. Part of self-awareness is understanding why we do get angry in the moment. Sometimes it truly is over a, a matter of righteousness and justice, and if that's the case, then you're, you're channeling the heart of God. God gets angry about that, too. That's awesome. But a lot of the time, our anger is coming from a different place. Most psychologists will say that anger is what they call a secondary emotion. It's like the leaf on a tree that's actually caused by a root deep down of fear or of hurt or pain. And so it just gets triggered, and that's when we, we lash out in anger, right? If we've had a difficult childhood with our parents, and they did awful, terrible things to us, and there's a wound in there, and we haven't dealt with that wound, then that person comes along and starts to sound a little bit like mom, and we lash out at them. It doesn't have to do with that person. It's not because of them. It's not about that situation. It's about the pain that's still there that we haven't resolved deep down. Amen. So this is where we need healing. This is why we can't just snap our fingers and say, I'm just not going to be angry anymore. I know that I'm speaking to some of you because there are almost always as many people in a room like this that struggle with anger. And some of you have just decided, well, I'm just an angry person. I don't want to say you're not just an angry person. You have, you have a wound somewhere. You have something that needs healing that Jesus wants to heal, that Jesus wants to work in. That's why that anger bubbles up. I remember as a young mom, every morning I would pray, Lord, help me not to yell at my kids. Help me not to yell at my kids. Help me not to yell at my kids. And I would pray it, and I'd have my friends pray it for me. I'm just going to be a good day. I'm not going to yell at my kids. And by 11 o'clock, I'm screaming at my kids. <laughs> I just couldn't stop it. It just was always happening. And it wasn't until years into it, and when anger was coupled with that anxiety, and I was really struggling, I went and got some help. I spoke to a counselor, and we started working it through and realizing that I have some control issues. It's not good to have control issues if you have little kids, because you really understand how little control you have. And so I had control issues, and I wanted everything to be just right, and I needed to show myself strong and competent. And so I had to start to deal with some of that stuff, that was deeper stuff inside my soul. But once I started to let the Lord touch that piece, once I started to share it with this counselor, we said, I got wisdom from her and I also prayed and, we, and the, Lord, the Lord came in and he started to set me free of that. 
And then things changed and I wasn't yelling so much and I wasn't so anxious. Do you understand that God can actually change you? He can actually do a work inside of you, but we need to open ourselves up to God. We need to even come, become aware. We need to seek to heal that damaged root that is producing the fruit of anger in our lives. And so I just want to take a moment right here because I just feel like this is a topic and an issue that some of us are really struggling with this morning. You know that the anger that you, you cannot quite control is affecting your family. It's affecting your kids. It's affecting your marriage. Maybe it's even affecting your workplace. And you think, I'm just an angry person. I can't get past this. And I just wanted to say to you this morning that Jesus wants to do a work in you, even at this moment. So can we just take a second? Can we just close our eyes just for a moment? And Father, if this is resonating for anyone here this morning, maybe it's frightening somebody here this morning. They're saying, ooh, I don't want to even go there because I'm sure there is a root somewhere that needs healing and I'm afraid to find it. Lord, would you give us courage to open up our hearts to you to do a healing work in us, Lord God, that only you can do. Give us the humility to find help to seek help, to ask help. We open up ourselves to you, Lord, this morning. Do a work. In Jesus' name, amen. just want to say, if at, if at this point there's anyone who's like, this is really, I just really want to pray about that more. This is really speaking to me. You, you can quietly make your way over to the table and um, release there. Someone from our prayer will meet you there and take you to the next room. I, I always feel like if someone speaks to you in the middle of a sermon, you don't have to see the rest of it, okay? Um, you don't have to listen to the rest of it. You just need to let God deal with you where you are, all right? So I just want you to know that option is available to you. But we're going to go on in James, this, this next section, the next area that we need self-awareness, and that is about our actions. Okay, so we're going to go back to James and read verses 22 to 25. Not only are we dealing with self-awareness in our words, which we just covered, but, but self-awareness in our actions. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. If there's a key verse to all of James, if there's a theme verse of the book, it is this one. Do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. This is, this is the whole summary of James. This is get real in first century language, okay? He's just basically saying, get real. If you listen to the word and say you believe it, then do what it says. Get real. Say, get real. Get real. We're going to get real. And if we don't, we deceive ourselves. There's that self-deception again. We're kidding ourselves. This is where James starts to sound a lot like big brother Jesus. Jesus in Luke 11, 28 says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And we get this great illustration of a person looking in the mirror and seeing what they, who they are and then, and then walking away and forgetting about it. This great visual image here. And um, you know, I'm going to speak to you, to myself as much as to you right now. But how often have you listened to a sermon, gone to a retreat, gone to a conference, listened to a podcast, and you've said, that's it, I need to do that. 
It's striking me to the heart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change, you know. I know that God's speaking to me about that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And we've, we've, we've looked at ourselves in that mirror. We've seen, you know, where we're, where we're struggling and where we're going to ask God to come in and where we're, we need to do better. And we look at that mirror and we're all good. It's going to be different now, Lord. I can't wait to get home and just get started on, on living this new life. And then we get home and it's back to normal. <laughs> right? We've forgotten all about it. Why is that? Is anybody, I hope someone else other than me does that, because <laughs> I do that all the time. We get back into regular life. We get back into, you know, the struggles and the strains. It's a lot harder in real life than it is up on the mountaintop at that retreat or that conference. We've looked in the mirror and then walked away, forgetting what it looks like. And this is why we get frustrated in our Christian life, right? We get frustrated even with the book of James, because it seems there's a lot of things we go, yeah, I really want to work on that. I really need to do that. Um, and yet we can't seem to do it. We can't seem to, to do it consistently. It's like, it's like New Year's resolutions, right? You're good for what? Three days, five days, two weeks if you're really strong, and then it's, and then it's done. Remember what I said about James last week. There is going to be a temptation in you to go, you know, I gotta, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. There's a temptation to get on, you know, these works I've gotta do right, I've gotta be better. It won't work. That's not how we address the book of James. When we come to James, we need to come to Jesus first. We need to ask him to begin to fill us. What does James say here? How do we do this? He says, gaze intently into the perfect law that brings freedom. This is how we fulfill these commands in the book of James and live the Christian life we're supposed to live. We gaze intently into the perfect law. We're not just gazing at ourselves in the mirror. That's just self-help. You can get some. You can get a New Year's resolution going for a few weeks with self-help by just gazing at the mirror. But it'll it'll fade away. He says, "No, look in the mirror, see yourself clearly, and then gaze into the perfect law that brings freedom. Gaze into the perfect law that brings freedom. But who is the perfect fulfillment of the law?" Who is the word of God? Who is the one who gave us all the promises that the law was going to be implanted in our heart? The Holy Spirit was going to come into us and help us and to walk this way. Who is that, by the way? Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We're to look to Jesus and to his words, and that is how we do this. When we are convicted by the words of James, we don't just say, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do better. No, we get on our knees and we say, Jesus, I'm submitting myself to you. I'm yielding myself to you. Do this work in me. I'm going to start walking with you every day. And sometimes we have to do that little drop to the knees thing 20 times a day. I know when I was trying to get past yelling at my kids and being anxious about everything that was going on with them, probably about 20 times a day I had to stop. I had a little spot on the in the bathroom where there was a cold tile wall. And I would just put my head against the cold tile because it would kind of cool me down. <laughs> and I put my head against the cold tile and I'm like, okay, Jesus, I'm calling on you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. It's the only way I could start to see God change me was when I came to him every day. Gaze intently into Jesus. Every day, if you at work is really getting you going, it's hard for you to say things in a nice way. You, you, you put on a different persona when you get to work, boy. People here wouldn't recognize you when you're at work. You know, you're just this tough guy, whatever you are. Ask the Lord Jesus 20 times a day. Set a little timer on your phone. 
in your calendar to just stop. Say, Jesus, may I be filled with your spirit. May I bring your spirit into this place. May I be a light for you in this place. Amen. This is how we see victory. The last piece of James in this passage is uh, we need self-awareness about our religion, which we've kind of been talking about, but he, he brings it together here in James 1, 26 and 27. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He's coming back to that idea of deception, that we can think our religion is one thing, but it's really not. This is get real again. Is your religion real? And that word for religion and religious is, is two Greek words that are very similar, threskos and threskia, is speaking about the acts of religious worship. In other words, it's like coming to church, worshiping, singing songs, clapping, all of that. Is that real? He's saying all those pious acts of worship are nothing if it's not backed up by action in our life. Sobering. Sobering. He's saying, what's your true religion? He's, he said this to Saul. If you remember back in, in uh, Samuel said this to Saul. Back in the days of King Saul, Saul performed an act of worship, offering a sacrifice, but it was in disobedience to God. It wasn't what God wanted him to do. But he's like, but I was worshiping. God, I come to church. I'm a good person. Samuel says this. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and songs and praise and clapping of hands as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. True religion. We want to be a place that gets real here at church that we're real about where we're struggling because we're all hypocrites just a little bit, but that we are seeking to have our life match up what we say we believe when we're up here singing all those good songs. What are some indicators of true religion according to James here? Keeping the tight rein on our tongue. We've been talking about that. We'll get back to more about the tongue. James really likes to talk about that in a couple chapters. He says taking care of orphans and widows, looking outside of ourselves, caring for others and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world, living differently than the world. This is get real, church. Not easy, right? But can we do it? Can we do it because of Jesus in us? Get real, get real. Say get real. I am really glad that at this point, we are gonna go into a time of taking communion. I'm so glad. Because if I had to guess, some of you after this passage are thinking, oh boy. <laughs> Oh boy, there's a lot of work for God to do with me yet, and I don't know, I don't know. Maybe some of you are feeling a little overwhelmed. How can we live this well? And it's that moment when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to come. Don't let it overwhelm you. Don't, let, don't say, oh, I hope the person to the right of me is hearing this or the person to the left of me. Let's, let's ask the Lord, what are you speaking to me this morning? Help me to be self-aware. Maybe come up with a new awareness this morning about where you're speaking and working in my life. Let's be humble and look into the mirror and let God show us what's there and then look to him to do the change. Not keep staring at the mirror, oh gosh, how bad that looks. No, no, no. We, keep, we, we, start, we start to look intently at Jesus. In our speech, 
with our anger and how we care for others. When the conviction of God comes in the book of James, we fall to our knees not in shame, but in surrender. In surrender and dependence on God. And this is what communion is all about, because without Jesus, you can't do any of it. I can't do any of it. We're hopeless without him. And Jesus came. He died on the cross so that you and I would have a way to do this. A way to live this way. And so this morning, I want us to be reminded of the sins that we have maybe been pointedly reminded of this morning. That all of those sins, all the weaknesses, all the things that we struggle with, that we can lay them at the foot of the cross and we can be forgiven. That God does not judge us for not, for, for not getting it right all the time, for, for speaking out of turn sometimes, for talking too much. He doesn't, he doesn't judge us for that. If we are in Christ, if we have been forgiven in Christ, we are made holy by him. And it's then in him, once we come to him, he fills us with our, his spirit, and then we can walk with him, and we can start to work on our tongue and all the rest. It's in that order. Please don't get that order off this morning. And if you're here this morning and you've never really given your life to Jesus, you've never actually asked him to forgive you of all your sins, this is a moment where you can do that. You can say, Lord, I do want to be better, but I, I know I can't do it on my own. So Jesus, would you forgive me of these sins? I believe in you. And in that moment, he will make you a new creation. He works in you. He changes us. And he gives us his Holy Spirit within us to work in power. This is what we're going to be celebrating at the communion table this morning. This is what he did. He died for us so that we could have new life, a new hope to live. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Because we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus gets it. He gets you. He knows you all the way down deep. He knows all the in unknown parts, even the parts you don't know. He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's draw near. This morning, I want to just have us take a moment of silence. I'd like to invite the band and the communion servers to come up at this point. Lord God, we, we're just going to take a few moments to make room for you, to open up our hearts to you. We are drawing near to the throne of grace, Lord. We are bringing you all those things that have been coming to mind during this message, Lord. All the things, the ways we have looked in the mirror and seen a problem, seen something that's just not right, Lord. We, we draw near to the throne of grace with that problem and that sin. And instead of gazing on the sin and gazing on ourselves, we gaze on you, Jesus. You can deliver us, Lord. We make room for you, God. We open up our hearts to you, that you would have a victory in us, that you would have a victory in our lives, Lord. 
don't reject us, Lord. You receive us. Search our hearts, God. Search them, Lord. Start to cleanse out all the junk in there, Lord. He's cleaning us out like an old closet, Lord. He's cleaning us out like an old closet. He's just, he's coming in and he's, he's touching. He's taking away those things that just are, we don't need anymore in our life. to get way into the corners, cut it all out. God, where we have a, a broken root this morning, a painful place in our spirit, Lord, we open that up to you. Please come forward and receive. 